Hello and welcome to Riffs on Riffs, where we explore the collision of original and sample tracks and the artists who made them. I'm your host, Joe Watson. I'm here with my co-host, Toby Braswell. What's up, Toby? Not much, Joe. What's going on with you? Not a whole lot. So together on this show, we listen to legendary tracks and the timeless but sometimes not so well-known songs that they sampled from. So my friend, what song are we going to be exploring today? Well, this song is called Pray by none other than MC Hammer. It's right off his third studio album entitled Please Hammer Don't Hurt Him. This song helped fuel sales for this album to over 18 million. You know how much money that is, man? That's a, well, yeah. I mean, that's not even included. That's a lot. (laughs) Obviously a lot of money, right? Hey, but before we get too deep in this conversation, why don't we go back and, and listen to the track that actually inspired it? Rewind. Such a great guitar sound. Get it, Toby. Get it. Man, this song is good. So good. It's never a bad time to hear this song. And this song, of course, is When Doves Cry by Prince. It's the lead single from the album Purple Rain, which was released on May 16, 1984. It was a worldwide hit, first number one U.S. single, topped the charts for five weeks. It was the top-selling single of the year. Kept a certain song by The Boss, a.k.a. Bruce Springsteen, Dancing in the Dark, which was unfortunately gets all the way back down to number two because it was sitting behind this epic track. Yep, yep. When Doves Cry was ranked number 52 on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. And it was actually written specifically for the movie Purple Rain. I guess Prince was asked by the director to write a song about the themes of parental difficulties and a love affair. Not really sure those things go together, but somehow Prince made it work. <laughs> he also had some inspiration because allegedly this track was written about his on and off again girlfriend, Susan Moonsey, um, who's actually referenced in another great 80s track from who I think is one hit wonders, okay. uh, Timex Social Club, a song called Rumors. Huh. So this this line, Susan, is about actually Susan Moonsey. Let's take a quick listen to that. Was she that tall? I mean, <laughs> she couldn't have been, right? Prince is what, like 5'2"? <laughs> yeah, five, one and a half. So that'd be an odd yeah, pairing. Yeah, but, yeah. but I mean, is it even possible to keep track of Prince's girlfriends? Man, I, I mean, allow me to shed a little bit of light on this subject, okay? Let's call this section of the conversation royal attention. All right. All right, because uh, Prince certainly had, never was lacking attention. So let's just go down. Let's start with, with who he was married to. Miss Meta Garcia was his first wife. I married for four years. Then came Manuela Testolini, second wife, married for four years. Then she actually married Eric Bounet, who actually was married to Halle Berry. Ah, okay. You like that? All right. He also was engaged to Sheila E., who was oh, his so drummer. Oh, so he was done with the marriage thing? Yeah, done with the marriage thing. Okay. We're not going back, All right. right? They're not going back. Twice was enough. Twice was enough. So engaged to Sheila E., Propose, he actually proposed during a performance of Pearl, on a Purple Rain tour. That's interesting. Isn't that? 
That's different, right? It's better than a, a Cavaliers game or anything like that. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right, that's true. It's going to stand out a little bit more. <laughs> then we have uh, Susanna Melvoin, who's a singer-songwriter. And there's a rumor behind this, her being the inspiration behind the Nothing Compares to You track. That the he, Sinead tune? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I forget that. He wrote that for her. He wrote it. He wrote it and actually recorded a version of that later on. And it's equally as epic. It's pretty cool. Then we have Sherilyn Flynn. Is an actress from uh, the TV show Twin Peaks. You might have heard of it. Yep. Then you have Vanity. Vanity. Vanity Model, Six. Models. An actress from Vanity Six. Apollonia from Apollonia Six. Well, yeah. Once Vanity <laughs> got booted, we were we replaced. Had to, we had to replace her. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's funny. You replace Vanity, right? Right. <laughs> With Apollonia. Okay. Whatever. Then you have Susan Moonsey, who we've been just talking about. She was actually part of Vanity Six and Apollonia Six. Madonna. What? He, he dated Madonna. Jill Jones was a backup singer. Uh-huh. Kim Basinger and Carmen Electra. Kim Basinger. Was this back in like the Batman days when she was Man, looking fine? Y- you know it had to be. Yeah. I mean, if you look if you look at all of his his girlfriends in a row, I mean there's nothing but beauty. It's like the Man had good taste. It's like the 18 wonders of the world. <laughs> <laughs> They're all beautiful. <laughs> Bria Valente as well, singer and songwriter. I mean, that's that dude's had a hell of a run. Not only were these women beautiful, but they were also extremely talented, right? So we were just talking about Susan Moonsey, and she was part of Vanity Six, which of course became Apollonia Six. But they actually had a, a pretty decent hit called "Nasty Girl," which I love that song. Let's take a quick listen to that, P- do please. You? Okay. Let's not take a quick listen. Let's take our time with this one. <laughs> right, let's do it. what that song's about <laughs> well listen do you remember the first time you heard it no i do oh please tell me <laughs> it was either beverly hills cop one or oh, two. Oh yeah it was that scene where they were in the adult oh. club okay and so eddie walks in and and the you know he's got those two cops that are pretty straight laced right. with him and they're like they're feeling all uncomfortable he's like man we at home and he's like we are at home <laughs> we're good <laughs> let's talk a little bit about purple rain and its influences both the record and the movie have you seen the movie Interestingly enough, uh, I have not seen the movie. I have not either. I have not seen the movie, which and is kind of crazy. I don't know if it's because, you know, what, in 84, I was 10, so... Fourth grade. Yeah, <laughs> it probably wasn't appropriate for not us appropriate to be watching it. It's not on Netflix, so... I um, looked. Yeah, I did it's too. Not. <laughs> but I kind of want to watch it now. I want to watch it now. Yeah. And I even searched on YouTube. I'm hoping they have it somewhere, but uh, yeah. Yeah. So, all right, maybe we'll have a movie night. Here we go. So, when we're talking about When Doves Cry, um, Prince played all the instruments on this track, and what's interesting is he he nicks the bass track completely, right? So from my understanding, uh, they're almost done editing the movie, right? He explains referring to the big screen debut of Purple Rain, When Doves Cry. The song was actually the last song to be mixed, and it just wasn't sounding right. So, I mean, I think we've all been there with music, right? We, we're, we're real close to being completely done with the song, sure. something that you've written. And you're like, man, something's missing, something's missing. And well, in it, this case, what's it, what's cool is something wasn't missing. Right. He had a bass line in it. And he actually really liked the bass line, but um, he decided that it wasn't, it, it sounded a little too, I guess, vanilla. It sounded right. like every other track, right? So he said, all right, what would make this a little more interesting and a little edgier? And he said, let's, we don't need a bass line. Let's take it out. I thought that was so cool. In fact, until I read that, I didn't even notice that there wasn't you don't. a baseline in it. That's because the percussion used to it. and everything, right? It, it still feels like everything is there and, it, and mm-hmm. all the pieces fit. And the other cool thing is that you know Prince is a pretty good bass player himself. 
He was mm-hmm. a pretty phenomenal musician, just overall. Period. Like a lot of instruments. Right. Um, he was influenced by Larry Graham, who was the, the bassist for Sly and the Family Stone, and then later founded his own band, Graham Central Station. You get the pun in there. It's kind of fun. <laughs> Love that. And Larry's credited with inventing the slap bass technique, although what, what did he like to call it, Toby? Thumping and plucking. Yeah, that's just fun. I think I may call it that from now on. <laughs> I think you should. <laughs> but but Larry was a monster. So let's listen to one of his tunes, uh, The Jam. Such a great group. Man, look at the way he's, he's, he's walking he's, that dog. Thumping and plucking. So I got a story about that. Okay. So in regards to how he developed into that, to that thumping and plucking style, right, how that all came to be, he was playing with his mom actually in a trio, right? So they all had a band. Mom was on piano. Larry played the guitar and also played the organ, the, the bass pedals, you know, used the pedals sure, for the bass, right. right? And then they also had a drummer. Well, the organ broke, <laughs> right? The organ broke. So Larry went and bought a bass guitar. Thinking that, well, hey, when the organ gets fixed, we'll be all right. Sure. Uh, well, the organ was unfixable. Never got fixed. Never got fixed. And Larry got stuck uh, with the bass. So they got rid of the drummer. Right? So the drummer's gone. So it's just him and his mom. And he actually developed this, the the style, the, 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 the plucking style, actually to uh, represent the backbeat and the actual, the, the thumping actually would be more like the, represent the bass drum aspect of the track. So I thought that was so innovative, right? That's so cool. Very innovative. What do they say? Necessity is the mother of invention, right? That's it. Absolutely. So the styles used heavily in funk, right? Bootsy Collins, again. We got to talk about Bootsy talk about in every Bootsy. episode. Every episode, right? Carried on by players like Flea, Les Claypool, Stanley Clark, Victor Wooten. And Larry Graham actually got a chance to tour with Prince from, what, 1997 to 2000. Yeah. So we had a good run. They, they had a pretty good working relationship. Guess who Larry Graham's nephew is? Let me see here. So I got a list of possibilities here. I'm going to start from the bottom, okay, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll get there. Is it a name that will make headlines? Yes. Okay. Is somebody fancy? Mm, yes. Someone that'll make the ladies jump man? Mm-hmm. Hmm. My guess. Is he a nice guy? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that would be important. Uh, you got to be nice for what? I, I like what you did there, partner. I really like what you did there. You're, you're telling me Drake is related to Larry Graham. That is true. That's like, uh, crazy. Larry's actually Drake's uncle. So I don't know if that had any influence on his career, but it's not a bad guy to be related to. It's got to be part of God's plan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. All right. We're done with those puns. <laughs> so we already talked about Prince being a fantastic musician and playing a lot of different instruments. And, of course, he was a great bass player. Somebody asked him once what his favorite bass line that he himself recorded, and it was from the Times, 1982 song 777 and 9311. And his quote was, because nobody can play that line like I can. Prince wrote and played all the instruments for that debut album for the time under the pseudonym Jamie Starr. So I don't know how that ranks as far as pseudonyms go, but it's okay, I guess. But it does have a great bass line, and I just, let's listen to that. Let's do it. You know what's a shame, man? What's that? A shame that there aren't any video 
Oh, There's no video I would, out there. I'd love to see him playing this. Him, him in the studio. Yes. Just, just going crazy. I mean, you see stage stuff, but I want to see him like in the, in the moment of creating. And I, don't, I don't know that I've ever actually seen him play bass. Certainly not slapping or, you know, thumping and plunking, but... Mm-hmm. Such a great track. nasty. Love it. And he was also a very talented guitar player. Um, I think everybody's familiar with Let's Go Crazy and that end solo, just that, well, let's listen and see if you get goosebumps. Just that tone. I don't know what he was using in his rig, but <laughs> some good stuff. Big finish, big finish. I just want to know what he had for breakfast when he <laughs> did this. What did you eat? Right? So what is in your oatmeal? That's what I want to know. Tell me. So we've been talking about When Doves Cry by Prince. Uh, it was actually covered in 97 by Genuine. You remember The Bachelor when that came out? Oh, I remember. Pony. And, yeah. <laughs> Please. Yeah. Um, let's listen to that cover, and I want to get your thoughts, Toby. Sure. What do you think? Well, I like it. Okay. I like it. I I think it's cool. It's definitely a different... It's slowed down. It's it's a little... Right, right, right. I mean, but it's it's genuine, right? Yeah. And it's Timbaland. So I love his beats, right? So you got to... I mean, this is when Timbaland could really do no wrong. He's working with Aaliyah. Right. You know, that whole one in a million time. He could really do no wrong, right? You have groups like Playa and, you know, Aaliyah and Genuine. It's like, dude, you can't do anything wrong at this point so yeah i think it yeah i agree but it's hard to compare it with the original right, track so uh, that that's where you that's where you lost it right right um prince himself was actually not a fan there's a quote from him saying you know i was just busting on him to bust on him but i was a little serious have some respect man if everyone tried to cover you know respect by aretha i would shoot them myself <laughs> I mean, that's a little harsh, but it is harsh man <laughs> it's so harsh so here's my question right you knew they were going to do the track. You signed off on it, right? Prince. Yeah, that's. I mean, so you unless know, they did it and then cleared the publishing rights, I don't man, know. But, oh man, so obviously Prince was not a fan of Genuine's cover, but he did allow another cultural phenomenon to sample when Doves Cry for his own hit. Toby, I pray you are ready to tell us all about it. Joe, I'm so excited. I've I've prepped for this moment all week. Okay, I just hope after this discussion, you can say that I nailed it. <laughs>
right, so what you are listening to is Prey from MC Hammer, recorded and released in 1990. Prey was a third single off of MC Hammer's third album uh, that was released entitled Please Hammer, Don't Hurt Him. MC Hammer actually produced this track himself. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah, he produced it himself. I, I, I had no idea. So, Joe, I have a question for you, a trivia yeah, question. Lay it on me. Okay, how many times did Hammer say the word Prey in this song? Hmm... No idea. Can you believe 147 times? What? 147. That is a lot. It is. Who, who, who counts that? That is a very good question. I have no idea. Someone who obviously has, doesn't have much else going on, I would say, right? Uh, well, I know someone definitely heard it, right? Sure. Uh, goes by a lot of names, Heavenly Father, Jehovah, Yahweh, whatever. Uh, due to the fact that it did as well as it did, right? So someone definitely was listening. An interesting fact is that this song isn't the first Christian rap song that he did. He actually was a part of a Christian rap group called the Holy Ghost Boys before he actually was sporting uh, hammer pants. That was really yeah, Holy Ghost Boys. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting name. Have you ever heard of him? I have not. Let's get into a little bit more of his uh, background. <laughs> All right, let's do it. All right. So MC Hammer, otherwise known as Stanley Kirk Burrell, was born in March of 1962 in Oakland, California. And you could find him in his younger days outside of the Oakland A Stadium, where he used to sell straight baseballs and dance with his friend who was beatboxing. Nice. So the Oakland A's manager at the time, Charles Finley, actually saw him at 11 years old uh, performing outside and was so impressed by MC Hammer that he actually offered him a job to be the clubhouse assistant and bat boy. And he did that for seven years. And it was during that time that he actually uh, got the nickname of Hammer. So have you heard about how he got that nickname? I did not, no. Well, Hank Aaron, who's a famous baseball player, right? Yeah. His nickname was Hammer. Yes. And Reggie Jackson, who was... The Hall of Famer as well, Mr. October, Oakland A's, New York Yankees, legend. All of that, yeah. all of the above, thought that MC Hammer looked a lot like Hank Aaron. That is a great comparison. So they called him Hammer. Okay. So... When Stanley was young, he had dreams of being a professional baseball player, but that never really panned out. Didn't make it on the professional team. Uh, but he did uh, end up going to the Navy and served in the armed forces for three years before deciding to pursue a career in music and entertainment. After a failed record deal, he borrowed 20000 from two former Oakland A players and decided to open up his own label. And that label was called Busted Productions. He actually sold records from his basement and from his car. He was hustling. Oh, very much so. Very much so. So that actually evolved into his independent record label called Bustin' Records, where he released his debut album, Feel My Power, in 1987 and sold 60,000 records. From, a, from his own independent label. That's, that's... That's a lot. Damn impressive. That is a lot. 60,000. I mean, that's, that's good money yeah, when you think about absolutely. it. Absolutely. So he attracted a lot of attention, right, from his grassroot movement here. Everybody wants a piece of him now. Everybody does. Everybody does. He received several offers. He turned them all down until Capitol Records came with an offer that I guess he couldn't refuse. $1.75 million advance for a multi-album contract. Wow. He re-released the Feel My Power album with additional tracks. And I want us to take a listen to one track from the album. It's one of my favorites, Turn the Mother Out.
Toby, I want to thank you for providing me an opportunity to sneak some George Clinton in here. Let's do it. This song samples the chorus from Give Up the Funk, Tear the Roof Off the Sucker, Parliament's mm-hmm. 1975 funk classic, and actually one of my favorite intros ever. Please, let's listen to it. Tear the roof off, we're gonna tear the roof off the mother sucker. <laughs> tear the roof off the sucker. Tear the roof off, we're gonna tear the roof I... off the mother sucker. Tear the roof off the sucker. Tear the roof off, we're gonna tear the roof and they have fun recording this. Oh my goodness. You know they did. And actually, this also samples the incredible Bongo Band, which we had referenced in the previous episode, and another random thing that keeps showing up in, in all the podcasts we do. It's funny how that works. Man, that is funky. Well, the album Fill My Power sold 2 million records. So, I mean, MC Hammer is a household name at this point, right? Yep. Two million albums sold. And two years later, he actually released his next album, Please Hammer Don't Hurt Him, in 1990. Now, this album, the first one, let's say, what, two million? I mean, that's... That's real good. That's a solid, solid start, right? More than solid. But this album, totally different. I mean, he really tore the roof off the sucker, I think, in this one. I mean, he had hits like, you can't touch this. What? Uh, this, I mean, we got to oh, play I, it, right? Have I heard that before? I, I think you have. I think well, let you me have. hear it just to, just to make sure. Just to remind you? Yeah. Sure. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. You can't touch that's, this. That's a great, it's like a freaky track. It's almost super freaky. <laughs> <laughs> well said, well said. <laughs> yeah, he sampled Rick James for this. Uh, and I... Even as a child, I realized, like, man, he is sampling people that I know. As yeah. a, even as a youngster, I'm like, man, I know that. Like, that's so He was cool. going after the hits. I told you, homeboy, you can't touch this. Yeah, that's how we live in So, of course, this mega hit sampled Rick James' Super Freak, which is part of the reason it probably went on to sell the 18 million records. This album was fueled with hits like You Can't Touch This, which we just listened to, and Pray, which is the one that sampled When Doves Cry by Prince. It was the first hip-hop album to actually achieve diamond status, which is multi-platinum. So again, that's a lot of records sold. But it's, it's I feel like Hammer gets a lot of criticism. Why is that? Well, he gets a lot of criticism because he really, his perspective has, you know, it's really coming from a pop perspective, right? So it was... And that was, wasn't cool. It wasn't cool at the time. So he got a lot of Criticism from um, hip hoppers, you know, like your tribe called Quest, your, um, you know, third base, you know, people that were quote unquote oh, the base. real hip hop. Yeah. Pop yeah. goes the weasel. Pop goes the weasel. That's right. So he get, he got a lot of criticism for that. But, you know, Ice T actually came to his defense. Really? Yep. I didn't know that. Yep. Came to his defense and said, hey, you know, Hammer's always been that way. He's not, he hasn't flip flopped. I have no problem with him you know, having tracks like this, because he's always been that guy. I mean, it would have been more disingenuous, right, if he decided, I'm going to be all gangster. Like like he did? (laughs) Oh, wait, wait, hold on a second. (laughs) He did go gangster for a little bit, right? He did go gangster for a little bit. But at that point, he's just trying to, he's trying to sell records. So, you know, I get it. It's entertainment. It's entertainment. It's entertainment. So. But eventually, it sounds like it all came crashing down and... Sounds like he lost the money and the fame. He did. He did. Uh, you know, he had a huge entourage, huge crew, caused him a lot of money issues trying to afford all of that. And it's, you know, it's been well documented. He had a tough time financially, to say the least. And in the end, he actually went back to his religious roots and after he retired from rapping, became a preacher. Uh, lost all the money, the fame, but he still kept the faith. Kept the faith. Good for him. 
Well, that's certainly a lot more than we can say for this next band. Let's take a listen to We Care A Lot by Faith No More. So this is We Care A Lot by Faith No More. This song was actually sampled in Prey, and you can kind of see the similarities between, you know, what they're doing here in the chorus. This was originally released in 85 off of their debut album of the same name. Then they got a major label deal and we recorded that entire album and released it as Introduce Yourself in 87, even though I guess they'd already been introduced. <laughs> uh, but if you listen to the lyrics on this, it's, it's all straight 80s references. Uh, they talk about the NASA shuttle falling and Live Aid and Rock Hudson. Uh, when they re-recorded it in 87, they actually changed some references to be more current and talked about Garbage Pail Kids and Transformers instead of Madonna and Mr. T. Um, but then singer Chuck Mosley got fired from the band, uh, and they came out with a breakthrough album called The Real Thing in 89, which also ushered in new singer Mike Patton, who is amazing and just has phenomenal vocal range and ability. And that's really when they they kind of blew up on a larger scale because of this song called Epic, which was an MTV staple. Let's listen to that. So, Toby, do you remember the controversy surrounding this video? Not at all. Yeah, so there's, uh, at the end, there's a goldfish, and the goldfish ends up on the pavement. Oh, no. Peter was not very happy about that. (laughs) So, there was a bit of a hubbub. Oh, wow. But Faith No More were certainly pioneers in the combination of rock and punk and funk and metal and rap, and just kind of threw it all together in this sort of crazy mixture. And they really paved the way for bands like Korn and System of a Down and Slipknot and... You know, whatever you feel about those bands. Have you ever seen a corn performance? I have. Man, they bring it. They I'm do. sorry. Absolutely. They bring it. That is an that is an entertaining show. Yeah. That is in it. I was in a uh, rap metal band you long, were? long time ago. Yep, yeah. I've learned things about you every day. And we got a chance to hang out with those cats uh backstage. Really? That sounds like some stories. Yeah, we'll talk maybe about it. Maybe for another later. maybe off the air. <laughs> we'll talk about it later. Right, fair enough. So the other thing we like to do on this show is offer you some bonus material. And in this one, uh, because When Dubs Cry was really one of the pioneering tracks to use a certain drum machine, we want to get into a little history of drum programming and the drum machine specifically. So let's start off with uh, something called the Chamberlain Rhythm Mate, Hmm. which came out in 1949. Invented by this guy named Harry Chamberlain. He started with the Rhythm Mate, actually, but then eventually turned it, uh, made a keyboard, which was more popular. I think the Rhythm Mate, they only made 10 originally. So I imagine that's a pretty big collector's item. And they do break the mold afterwards? Well, no, because then they, uh, in the 60s, they re-released it. Okay. But they, again, they, I think they only produced 100. Man. But uh, this is a quote from Harry. He says, he's sitting there and he's playing on his, on his organ. He says, for heaven's sake, if I can put my finger down and get a Hammond organ note, why can't I get a guitar note or a trombone note and get that under the keys somehow and be able to play any instrument? As long as I know how to play the keyboard, I could play any instrument. So, you know, in this way, he kind of inadvertently created a very early form of sampling, uh, which, which is very cool. Unfortunately, his idea was kind of stolen by one of Man. his own sales guys and reborn as, as the Mellotron. But uh, let's take a quick listen to what the Rhythm Mate sounded like back in the day. 
Yeah, it's not wowing you, but uh, I think what he did was he took a bunch of uh, you know jazz drumming tracks and then taped them, mm-hmm. and then would, they would loop them, and you can kind of modify them with that. Yeah, that's crazy. So about a decade later, we come out with the Wurlitzer Sideman, um, and so again, where the rhythm mate used tape loops, and would, they would degrade, right? So tape kind of breaks down over time. The Sideman was basically a music box that generated a sound via a rotating disc. So what a different sound. Let's take a quick listen to that. Huh. Listen to that. Sounds like a like a, somebody hit the bossa nova button. Right. That's funny you say that. <laughs> so this is 1959, right? This is what we have as far as drum machine technology. So we're going to fast forward to 1975. Um, there's the PAIA Electronics Programmable mm. Drum Set. And this was really kind of the first affordable programmable drum machine. It didn't have any buttons, just these touch-sensitive triggers. But guess what it did have? 256 bytes <laughs> of memory so you could save patterns. You imagine that? That would be so frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> it must have been oh enough at God. the time. Um, and, you know, people were able to use it. I, I don't know if you've heard a guy named Peter Gabriel, but uh, his song Games Without Frontiers uses this. So let's take a listen to that. Okay. So Prince was the first one to use something called the Lin LM1. This is exactly what he used on When Doves Cry in 1984. The world's first drum machine to use digital samples. So we must have moved beyond the 256 bytes, right? (laughs) Uh, So unlike the tape-recorded samples of like Chamberlain's Rhythm Mate, the Lin would never degrade. And Roger Lin, the inventor, his quote was, you know, he wanted a drum machine that did more than play preset samba patterns and didn't sound like crickets. So we're getting we're getting rid of the Casio keyboard yeah. sort of bossa nova sound. <laughs> so you can certainly hear that on When Doves Cry. That's the whole percussion bed underneath that. But now I think we're going to get into kind of a hip-hop icon as far as drum machines, and that's the Roland 808, which, you know, Questlove has said it was the rock guitar of hip-hop. So let's take a quick listen to that, and then Toby, I want you to tell me why this was such an iconic machine. So it certainly has that sound that we all recognize, right? Absolutely. It's the 808. That bass kick is stupid. It's so deep. It's so it, it, it's punchy, right? Yeah. Is it hits you in the chest. It's unmistakable. And it's, uh, it is a staple of the hip-hop sound. And it's one thing that hip-hop producers, doesn't matter what year, from the first time that it was introduced to now, people are still using it. And uh, it's been something that's been oftentimes duplicated or people have tried to duplicate it, but they've actually gone back and trying to find the original yeah. machinery to actually make sure they have the authentic sound of the 808. So the Roland TR-808 was actually introduced in the 80s. Yeah. All right. Uh, and it was, it received a lot of mixed reviews, which I think is so funny, because it's something that is, it's machinery that's so revered now. Right. Uh, and actually, because of that, you know, sales really weren't what so you want. <laughs> right. Not, not, so, not so good. They built approximately around 12,000 units, and then they actually discontinued it because of the semiconductors were actually impossible to restock, which is... Oops. (laughs) 
<laughs> like, did anybody think about that, right? And no one thought about that? Like, huh. Somebody goofed. Right, but well, thank God for, for samples and people being able to transform that sound digitally, you know, uh, yeah. and that's what we have today. Because there's certainly a lot of a lot of that going on right now. I mean, I've used 808 myself. Well, and I know Behringer is actually coming out with a clone, so they've been working on it for a while. Um, and by the time you hear this, it may actually be released, but they've done a clone of the 808 as well as the 909. But I don't think we could talk about the 808 without playing a song that actually calls out the 808 from Outcast. Let's listen to that. Let's do it. But I know y'all wanted that 808. Can you feel that B-A-S-S bass? But I know y'all wanted that 808. Can you feel that B-A-S-S bass? Can you hear the 808? Coming along under there. Is there anything wrong with this song? This is such a great song, too. (laughs) This is Outcast, The Way You Move. So we... We just did a brief walkthrough of the evolution of drum machine and programming. And, you know, we we didn't hit all of them, but we hit some of the big ones, like the the one we just finished, which was the 808. But, Toby, I think we have a situation on our hands. Do we need an intervention? We need need something. (laughs) So (laughs) this is what just happened, and I want to get your thoughts on it because it's it's not making me feel very good. (laughs) Okay, what happened? So where's Prince from? Minneapolis, Minnesota. Yeah. So if you were going to go play a show in Minneapolis— would maybe you'd want to pay him some homage. And, pay homage, absolutely. Right. And if you are a world-renowned band like Metallica, mm-hmm. you're going to do it right. Yeah. You, w- you would think, right? As compared to doing it wrong, right. I mean, these guys are icons. Absolutely. So I was excited because they were at the show and they're like, we're going to play When Dubs Cry, which is what we've been talking about this episode. So I would like you to take a listen, Toby, because I'm sure you're going to like it. I'm excited. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. You will the picture You and I This is Metallica. Well, it's sort of. It's Robert Trujillo and and Kirk Hammett there. I don't. I don't know, Toby. I don't know what this is. No, you do know. (laughs) You do know. So this is what. Apparently, Lars and James decide to go on a break during the show, and they stick these two out here. Who, by the way, are on stage with music stands. So I'm like, have you like ever practiced this? Like, this sounds like a horrible teenage garage band. Like I, I, and this look, I love Metallica. It's a phenomenal band. Absolutely. So this just hurts me a little bit. Mm-hmm. They should have said no. They should just just don't do it. <laughs> You're gonna do it, do it right. Just otherwise, don't. Do don't. But yeah. anyway, so we cannot end the show like we that. We cannot. I refuse. So let's go with. Uh, Maybe play a little tribute to a local band for us, Cleveland, and who's also, you know, internationally known. Absolutely. You want to take us out with that one, Toby? I think we shall. Let's do that. Let's play Thugs Cry by Mr. Busybone. I like it. All right. So that's it for today's episode of Riffs on Riffs. We just listened to Prince's Wind Doves Cry and MC Hammer's Pray, as well as We Care A Lot by Faith No More. Toby, what do we have uh, lined up for our next episode? Next episode, I'm really excited. You're I'm, like I'm, giddy excited. I, I am. I am, I giddy. am too, actually. I am giddy excited. We're, we're going to really take a deep dive into Hamilton. Oh. The play, the 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 myth, the the everything, right? So yeah. we're gonna go into all of that and talk about Lynn's inspiration for those tracks, and uh, I can't wait. I cannot wait, and I hope you guys will join us for that as well. Riffs on Riffs is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thanks to executive producers Joan Andrews and Michael Dealoya. Producer Julie Fink. Audio engineers Eric Coltnow and Dave Shaw and audio director, Michael Seifert. 
You can listen to more episodes of Riffs on Riffs by finding us on iTunes, Stitcher, or visit evergreenpodcast.com. And don't forget, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us an iTunes review. It really helps. I'm your host, Joe Watson. And I'm your co-host, Toby Braswell. Thank you for listening to Riffs on Riffs. Dylan, Marley, you've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.